Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Tell Me Your Tales. This is episode number 37. Thanks for tuning in. If uh, you're new to this podcast, welcome. What I do is I have chats with people about their life and what makes them tick and kind of their journey and all things kind of, yeah, just wherever the conversation goes and I share you in with it. So thanks for joining us today. Hopefully it brings you some kind of value. Today's episode is with Richard Welsh. Now, Richard is probably a bit different than some of the past guests we've had because he's not currently running at a kind of elite or sub-elite kind of level, but Richard sure knows a thing or two about running, sprinting, distance running, you name it. Richard is one of the most informed individuals in Australia when it comes to the sport of running. Richard was previously a national level 1500 meter runner, has ran some very quick times over the middle distances, and now owns and operates his company Epic Events. So Epic Events put on events all over Australia. Um, he kind of talks me through what it takes to put on an event, which is um, yeah quite interesting because we often never kind of see the back end of event management so it was interesting to talk to him about that he talks to me about his work with athletics australia and his work for run for your life magazine in which um took him overseas and um has taken him to some pretty amazing experiences that he's had along the way i hope you get value out of this chat today um you'll tell pretty quick in the conversation that Richard's pretty comfortable in front of the microphone, so he was very easy to speak to, and it was just a kind of free-flowing, great conversation that I'm really appreciative that Richard gave up his time so that we could have it. As always, if you've got some time on your hands and you can get to a laptop computer and um, or desktop and get onto the iTunes store and give us a review, that would be really appreciated. Thanks to all the people who are listening. This month has been our biggest month by far. Um, the numbers are blowing me away, just how many people this show is reaching each week. So I really appreciate that. If you've got a mate who's into running or any of the content that we're kind of delivering here, I'd really appreciate if you showed them how to download a podcast or uh, flick them through a link on social media or something. That's a way you can support the show and um, continue to see it grow. Thanks, guys. Enjoy this chat with Richard Welsh. Oh, 
Radio Richard Welsh, thanks for coming on Tell Me Your Tales podcast. Well, good to be with you, Brady. I uh, didn't know you had this in you, but it's been impressive so far. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Is that a bit of a put-down to start off or what? Just to... Absolutely not at all. Not at all, mate. Just a comical way to kick things off. Yeah, yeah. You just knew about my running abilities. I'm just going to think that's about it. That's it, mate. That's it. No, it's uh, good work for the sport, though. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, Well, I'm a bit nervous about this because you're usually the one behind the microphones and the media and things like that. So um, it's a bit of a role rehearsal. Well, I'm very relaxed, so so fire away, mate. Yeah, that's as good. Well, first question is I usually get the people who are the guests on the show to introduce themselves. So do you want to maybe tell the listeners just who you are and what you're all about? Sure. So I'm a chronically injured runner, uh, as how I describe myself. So instead of being as good a runner I can be these days, I try to be as good a race director I can. So uh, running, obviously, my number one passion and I ran as seriously as I could for uh, well over a decade, over 1500s, and um, growing up in Albury-Rodonga, moving to Tassie in 2006 to to work for Athletics Tasmania, and I started out as a development officer down here, and I uh, progressed into a number of different roles. Um, but I guess from a race director's perspective, I, I took a particular liking to the Cadbury Marathon. It was owned by athletics tasmania and we um i'd heard of it having done a little bit of work for run for your life magazine before i moved to tassie but when i saw it for the first time i was a bit like geez i thought this was bigger and so i took that event kind of under my wing and used it to uh to expand my interest in race directing and the event um grew and grew and grew and and then i added a a number of other events to the portfolio and um back when Dallas O'Brien was CEO of Athletics Australia. He asked me to to set up the the Running Australia Mark II program, which became iRun, which now longer no, no longer exists, sadly. Um, but then, uh, yeah, then went up to Northern Territory and then got away from athletics for a bit. Went and worked as the CEO of Football Federation Tasmania, or soccer to most people, and. Um, preferred to come back to running so I uh, started my own business epic events and marketing in early 2015 and uh, since then I've been doing all sorts of fun things including many fun runs yeah right never a dull moment there over the last what 10 years you'd say no boring lives are for boring people of which I'm not one of them yeah 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 let's go back to the start though mate so Aubrey Wodonga and was running a thing that come into your life pretty early or were you a talented junior or just worked hard in those middle ages I was a little athletics kid from the age of five through to 10 or 11 and then went and took up uh, soccer a bit more seriously and my soccer funny funny story my soccer coach when I was 14 said at the end of the season mate you're getting fat you need to do more than play <laughs> cricket over summer so I went back to a couple of mates who were doing little athletics and they had little, they had inter So I went to under 17. So from under 15s through to under 17s, I did little athletics again. Now, tell me a, teen, a middle teenager who wants to be called little and um, I don't think there's many of us around. And anyhow, so we um, progressed and I ran to the stall gift in 98, 99 because we didn't have a senior athletics club in Aubrey at the time. It was Wodonga Athletic Club, which had a really good, um, community feel to it and very active, but there was nothing in Aubrey. So first year of uni studying marketing and I uh, decided to join a group of like-minded people and we created the Border Track and Field Club. 
yep. which uh, still still runs today. Um, and we began that, and pretty much every uni of the university assignment I did was on the athletics club. Uh, much to my parents' disgust, they didn't think it'd ever account to anything. But in the end, it's ended up being my profession, working in uh, working in athletics and. Um, fortunately, it's, uh, it, it worked out okay. So um, from then, I, I, I ran pros mainly. Um, was never really good enough to go to Australian Junior Championships or anything. And then Pat Scammell, being the great man from Aubrey, and I still think the athletics track in, in, in Aubrey should be named after Pat Scammell. Pat Park, I reckon, would be a great name for yeah, it. Yeah, it would. Uh, and... Uh, took he, he took me under my, his wing at the age of 20 along with uh, a few guys, Adam Biles and Kevin Laws, and we had a bit of a, a squad going there in, in Albury, which was great times. And in, in one year, I progressed in 1,500. I think I went from a PB of 404 down to 351 and made a national final. Um, I finished 10th instead of 12th. I, I, I came last, but... Michael Power got disqualified for pushing Yusuf Abdi over, who uh, didn't finish. So, uh, and the results, I'm tenth, but really I was last in the national final, and that was uh, it. wasn't my PB race, but it was probably a, a career highlight very early on. Yep, and your PB is three forty nine, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of um, moving, and as you said, kind of top ten at nationals, even if it was an unofficial, well, an official top ten, but yeah, pretty uh, elite kind of level you got to. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I didn't because um, I wasn't a student of the sport until probably until then. I didn't really know too much about them, so I rocked up to nationals. It was the first nationals I'd been to. I'd never run a, an A series meet as they were back then, and I didn't really. Uh, if you, it's like if you don't know them, you don't rate them. So I was on the start line with some great athletes, and I remember Maury Plant introducing the field. And he goes, ladies and gentlemen, the next race on the track will be the men's open 1,500-metre title of Australia. And my initial reaction, honestly, was, gee, that would be a good race to watch. <laughs> and then I went, oh, shit, I'm in it. Yeah, right. So <laughs> did you just fluke it through the heat? So how would you make the final then? I ran, to be honest, it was I, I ran quite smartly. And my coach, Pat Scammell, said uh, there'll be 12 in the heat and – There'll be four guys who should make the final. It was first three and next three fastest, I think. He goes, there'll be four guys who should make the final, four guys who can make the final, four guys who can't make the final. And of the four who should, one will have a bad day and won't. And of the four who can, one will have a good day and will. You're in that middle group and your job is to be the one who pops up and gives one of the other guys a a bad day. And in the heat, I had... David Byrne, I think he came second in the final, and I had Michael Shelley, and I had Nick Bromley, and Michael Hayne, who ran 3.42 from South Australia, and um, basically I had a battle with him into the finishing straight and got that fourth spot, and um, it was a third heat, so we were the quickest of them. So a few things went my way, but um, yeah, I still think I ran smartly for a heat, not that I had any experience. Yeah, no, nah, and probably that's a good thing as well, being a bit naive and not really, you know. And sometimes we stand on the start line, you know, every single session that your competitors have done and all their PBs, and it almost psychs you out in a way, whereas it sounds like you didn't have that at all. Well, and it, the good thing is social media wasn't um, a, a factor back then or, you know, nothing was on Strava or Garmin or anything on those um, digital forms. So all you had was a wristwatch, and if you had a heart rate monitor, it was pretty fancy. So 
I, even though I'm only 35, I sound really old talking about how it used to be compared to how it is now. But uh, that was probably well, – I ran both my 800 and 1500 metre PBs in Europe, which was probably another reason why um, if, if you didn't know them, you didn't rate them because I, I did run a couple of – a series meets and I ran three or four nationals but I'd always get psyched out when you're lining up against you know Mark Fountains and Craig Mottrams mm. and um, so so it was, a, it was a very good era of 1500 meter running not not dissimilar to now there's some really good depth getting around. Tell me about the trip to Europe was that a bit of a like a group trip over there or? No I um, I took a stuff at all tablet in 2005 and uh Quit my job, broke up with my girlfriend, sold my car, rented out my apartment and took off all within five days. Um, I went to – first stop was Africa. I went to Kenya and spent six weeks training up in E10 in the Rift Valley and that was amazing. Um, best experience ever. I actually – you'll love this, Brady. I paced mate the 2005 Kenyan National 1500-metre championship. <laughs> the final. How, how long did you last? I went – through 341 and I looked over my shoulder and I thought there'd be a long line thin line of athletes and it was about five wide and I just went oh crap <laughs> I just put my head down in the hardest lap of my life I think I got to 800 in a just a shade over 156 in fact oh, that's a lie I didn't get to 800 I got to about 750 I tried to get 800 and couldn't because um, the the track in Nairobi is 1600 meters it's like being at top of Falls Creek. Yeah. Um, so attitude kicked in and I died. That just scraped me off the track. Tell um, me, I, this is what this podcast is all about, telling tales, and I didn't even know that you went over to Kenya, but how does an Australian bloke who's taken the stuff at all tablet end up pacing a Kenyan championship? Uh, well, some, some I, I heard that the championships were on and I was staying in a – at a camp with this Zimbabwean lady, Sharon Tavengua, and she was running the 1500. She said, come with me, and I went, sure. And so I rocked up, and then um, being one of only probably five white guys in the stadium, I, you know, swanned into the VIP area, asked to talk to the organiser, who I forget who it was. I'm pretty sure they were an Olympic medalist in one event, though, um, as many Kenyans are, and said, oh, can I run? And they went, um, nah. And I went, oh, really? Come on, I've come all the way from Australia. They go, oh, you're Australian. I thought you're, uh, thought you're uh, American. I went, yeah, yeah, Australian. They go, do you know Steve Monaghetti? <laughs> and I went, and I went, yeah, I do actually. I, and I genuinely did. I'd met Mona by that stage in my life through through Pat Scammell. And I went, yeah. And he goes, oh, you know, I'm pretty good mates with him. Yeah, yeah, no worries. You can have you know position number four on the start line. I went, oh, sweet. So next thing I knew, I was in the heat. So I actually ran in the in the heats, and I was there in the pack until 800, but. I just got absolutely blown away. They ran a three forty-seven or so in the heat, so I was well out of my league given the given the attitude as well. And I um I then offered to pace mate the final because I thought it'd be a memorable life experience. And uh, it took some convincing because they said, you know, we don't normally have a pacemaker for a championship final. So, and I said, yeah, it'd be good for the race, you know, make it faster. You've got guys here trying to qualify for. So, so in Kenya, they had the national championships, and then a month later, they had the world championships trials, which were in Helsinki that year. And I said, you've got guys here trying to qualify for that. I'll help as many as I can. And they went, okay, no worries. Way you go. So it was pretty cool. And I've got this one photo that I bought off a photographer in the ground before digital photos, and everything was on 
um, social media. I've got one photo of me leading this field of 11 very world-class athletes in Kenya, <laughs> and I'm, I, I stand out like nothing else. Oh, what a story, though. So you went over there to train, though. That was the plan, and then six weeks there, and then what happened? Yeah, then I took off to Europe and um, based myself in Paris, which was nice with some old friend, uh, an old friend that I met through uh, Aubrey High School. And uh, from there, I went and did a couple of the Flanders Cup meetings, which they still exist. I went and raced in Mole and Ortigam in eight and 1500s. And it's funny, I'd heard about this European circuit and everyone was talking about how wonderful it is. And so I just thought it was this magical experience where you just line up in a race in Europe and you order you, you you stamp your passport and you get a PB so I've lined up in this first race in in Ghent in Belgium and the gun goes it was an 800 and I had a PB of 155 at the time and no one led and I'm just like what what I've come all the way from Australia via Kenya and I've come to Europe where it's a mecca of athletics that I have to lead. So I, I took off and uh, I think I ran 158 or so on a windy day there. And I'm like, oh, well, this isn't as easy as I thought. Then I uh, did a 1500 in Ordigam and I met, um, I met the, Kenya, uh, the New Zealand national team, Paul Hamblin and uh, a few guys there actually headed up by John Bowden at the time, who I ended up employing when I was at Athletics Northern Territory eight years later as a side story. Um, and then we, um, they said, oh, we're going to London doing a Vic Miler, uh, not Vic Milers, goes to show how good the branding's going, <laughs> British, British Milers Club, me, uh, a week later. And I went, oh, oh yeah, tell me about that. And uh, so I found my way to London the next weekend and lobbed up and um, learnt how to get into the A race. So I had to lie. And back then it was easier to lie because rankings listings and the digital footprint of every athlete didn't exist so much so i lied and said i'd run 346 so they put me in the a race and um yeah ran my pb in that one so uh it was a good mate mo farrell won the mile uh before he became the mo farrell that we know yep and then um in fact mo the the next race i did was in italy in um rovereto at the foot of the dolomites and Mo ran the 5K there. In fact, actually, he was in the room next to me and we became, um, we got along really well. And that was that's another story which we probably don't have time to fit into for this one, um, how, I, how I talked my way into that one. But, uh, yeah, so that were both my PB races over 8 and 15 in Europe. And then, so what happened? What was the injury? Uh, well, I came back and I still ran okay and I made – qualify for final uh, nationals the next two years but basically i moved back to Aubrey and then got the job at athletics tasmania through brian rowe who most people listening know and yep. he he invited me down to hobart and from then on i never quite was the the athlete that i could have been or was um i ran a i ran a good thousand with grant pager and 224 for a k and i ran eight 26 for a 3,000 when I first moved to Hobart. But um, then I had feet troubles. And, and to be honest, it became uh, a, a, my job sort of overtook things, um, which sounds strange. You would think that working in athletics would be good for your own athletics. But in the end, you end up uh, helping so many other people because it's your job and it's also your passion. So ultimately, I worked for um, – 
uh, I, I just tried to be the glue for everybody, all the training groups, and I'd jump around from here to there, and it, and it wasn't the ideal consistent training that I needed. And um, I was quite aspirational in my career, and while I still tried to run and still would run 100K a week or so, and um, had some okay results into 2010 and, and qualified for nationals in 2011, um, just little feet injuries. I'm biomechanically not made to be a good distance runner, so um, it just tithered off. And then I got to the stage at the age of 30, I went, look, I'd rather be an active person the rest of my life than have crippled feet and things. So um, now I run, you know, three or four times a week for fun. Um, and I'm no longer a Brooks-sponsored athlete. I'm a Brooks ambassador, so I happily still get my free shoes each year from Brooks. Yeah, right. And you strike me as the kind of guy that could easily replace what you got out of running with the passion in the job side of things as well. Yeah, I did. I, I felt like in Tasmania in particular, and I didn't know too much about major events. I'd run City to Surf and Gold Coast Marathon and, and a whole bunch of things, but I felt like there was a need for many events, particularly in Hobart, to go to the next level um the bernie 10 was always a pretty well supported event and and probably the most professional um at that stage in in tassie and um it was about that time shortly after i moved to tassie that daniel green um got me starting working for run for your life magazine and and that really opened up my networks of dealing with um you know shoe companies but also other major races around the country and so we started to go and travel around and, and I, I I inadvertently became started to become a fun run expert because I'd go to all these events and I'd wear multiple hats. We'd be an exhibitor or I'd, I'd be a sponsor in some capacity or, or I'd be running in them and I was still good enough to get elite starts. So I'd be invited to, you know, the the, the better parts of the event and I just sort of – without thinking where to go, I just became a sponge for all this information and kept bringing it back and tying it into the earlier conversation about the Cadbury Marathon. I was using that as the event that I was developing. And so every year I'd make change. And basically we, we doubled the participation numbers every year of the, of the Cadbury Marathon from 2007 up to about 2012. And now it's sort of been steady around that 2,500 mark um, for the last few years. Yeah, I want to pick your brain on that because there's a massive difference between the elite side of a city to surf or the Cadbury Marathon or whatever it is, but you've got the bulk numbers in the fun run side of things. And it sounds like you were kind of sponging up all the um, the fun run side and the details behind the scenes. But how did you bring them both together? Well, I don't think I brought them together. That's Having uh, elite athletes and, and Joe Joggers in the one event is is nothing new it's been going on for since you know fun runs began but i've i I quickly realized that elite athletes um while i'm a strong supporter of having them and we can talk about that they actually cost you money they don't make you money Mm. and a lot of a lot of race directors focus on the elite athletes and probably too much um but really the ones you should be focusing on the masses because you know, if you can't get thousands of thousands into your race, um, then they're the ones who 
bring in the sponsor interest. They're the ones who bring in the entry fees for you to, you know, pay for elite athletes to come down and, and pay in, pay prize money and the likes of it. So you need to, you need a critical mass to support the ones at the top. And, and fortunately, I've been able to do that with most events that I work on. And sometimes if you've got a budget to pay prize money, then I'm, I'm a big fan of doing that. And that's why, I, you know, I've got the, the Run the Bridge, which, you know, is the richest 10K race in the country now, and the Mitchell Street Mile, which is the richest road mile in the world. And um, I'm, I'm able to, to do deals with sponsors and governments to get prize money in. But every one of those conversations you have with sponsors or governments, they want to know, the first question they want to know is how many people in your event. So you have to have lots and lots of people in your event in order for it to become attractive to people who are going to give you money to that you can then spend on elite athletes, if you follow. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because there's not many sports where people won't know the elite guys. So, for example, I've got, you know, live a K from a soccer field, and I can guarantee you could go down to soccer training tonight, and they all know the best soccer players in the world. But I could go to the Cadbury Marathon and there'd be 80, 90% of the participants who are running the race wouldn't have a clue who the winner of the marathon was or what his story was or what his last name is. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I reckon you need to get that balance right and you can't focus on the elite athletes too much. Um, the main benefit of elite athletes, I feel, is to get your media coverage for an event. Um there's only so many angles that you can put out to media on how to bring exposure and that's, you know, you've got great numbers or an amazing course or um, or what, but the, the, the staple is, you know, fast times, big names, you know, this person's represented Australia or their country at this, they're the record holder in this. You need something that you can sell to the media and that's that's the easiest way to get media coverage for a fun run. So. The, the, the best way to to manage that is to make sure that you've got that critical base of mass participation, but then, you know, the it's harder to get the stories out of the general runners. Um, mm. You know, you get, you get the odd one who's, you know, they've had heart surgery or they're a cancer survivor or they've lost 50 kilos, and but there's, we've had so many of those stories now that they're, 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 well, they're all inspiring in their own right. They're not new. And and so elite athletes never fail to produce stories and, and create headlines. Do you think it's just the marketing around those elite athletes, though, why the masses in the fun runs don't know their stories? Well, I don't think they're interested as well. Yeah. Um, uh, if, if you're – they're not paying to watch – if you take – Take the B&E Hobart Run the Bridge, for example. This year we had, in the men's race, we had Dave McNeil, we had Collis Birmingham, Liam Adams, Jack Rayner. Um, we, had a, we had a great field. But everyone there on the start line is there for themselves. They want to they run. They, it's not like they're going to pay to watch Roger Federer play or LeBron James play or something like that. They're, they're there because they want to be participating. And so... They're on the start line and they feel a bit special because they know that there's there's Olympians there and there's Australian record holders and there's these fast athletes, but they're focused on what they're doing themselves that day. So that's what that's what their interest is for the for the day. They're not they don't they, they want to know who wins and they want to know what fast time they run. They want to compare to it, but ultimately they're, they're 
they're there to have their own experience and that's run the race themselves. Yeah, good point. I never thought of it that way. Hey, um, I want to know what are your secrets for getting those numbers up at Cadbury Half Marathon or the Cadbury Marathon Festival kind of thing? What did you do? It did lots of things. Um, one of the biggest things to do is to uh, recognize previous participants because the easiest people to get into your event are the people who have done it before. So making sure that people have a good experience is paramount because uh, it, like any good business, you need repeat sales. So it's whether it's a coffee shop or a, a restaurant or a retail outlet, you know, you give people a good experience and they'll come back. So I really try and make sure that the events are uh, quality and people have a good time and they'll come back and typically in running and particularly with women this is what we've seen is that um, women women <laughs> attract women so to speak so uh, two blokes are trying have a race with each other they want to beat one another whereas women will run together and they'll recruit and run as groups so that was the number one thing number two was to um, I learned through working with the Gold Coast Marathon that the destination runner was a big thing so taking a Cadbury marathon example now over a, a quarter of the participants each year are from interstate or overseas so we did some advertising i was fortunate working with run for your life magazine that we could place cost-effective ads in there and encourage people to come down and also then when i had the database at athletics australia for the i run we had the database of every um, fun runner in the country so we were able to promote that and Given uh, the two other benefits with Cadbury in particular was the time of year. It's too bloody hot to run a marathon or a half anywhere else in the country in January, but in Hobart it's okay. And also it's it, at the time it was the only marathon uh, or half in Tassie that was accredited. Well, it still is the only accredited one and, and properly measured uh, in Tasmania. And so there's that aspect of I want to run a marathon in every state or every territory or, or you know, all, all continents on the world. So people quite often use the Cadbury Marathon to help them achieve that um, goal of getting around the world or, or Australia. And, um, and, and then the, the last point most recently, quite a lot of the elites are coming to it because if they want to run uh, an autumn marathon for us or a Northern Hemisphere spring marathon, um, you know, in Japan or or uh, some of the European or North American ones, uh, it's a good last hit out for them to come and uh, and race in Hobart. Yeah, and there's not much else at that time of the year as well, is there? It's pretty um the Zatapak in December, and then it's a bit of a lull period. Yeah, and and we deliberately put it back an extra week because we found a lot of the elites were up at Falls Creek still in the first weekend of January. So we pushed it out a bit and now it's the second week. Quite often people have left the mountain and they've gone up and had a month's worth of great training or so. They're super fit. They wanna, they're looking for a race. So it, um, it actually hasn't been that hard to put a field together for, for Cadbury over the years, um, particularly the men's half marathon seems to have been um, quite a popular one. Yeah, I did that one year, same story, come back from falls and feels like you've uh, got an extra gear. It's a good experience when that happens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, and there's um, quite a lot of them. Oh, sorry, keep going. I was just going to say, there's quite a lot of people doing that too. Yeah, no, good for you guys. Take me behind the scenes of putting on these races though because the participants, the fun runners, the elites, it doesn't matter who you are, you only get to see the start line, the course, the finish line. Maybe just go through some of the things that stress you out and the protocols that have to be put in place. Yeah, yeah so sure, the event planning starts probably 
the, bef- the next year event planning starts for me before that current year one has taken place. So, for example, next weekend I'm going to Darwin to organise the, the city to surf up there and I'm already planning the 2018 one even though the 2017 one's next year. And that's basically uh, – scheduling is a key part of it. Um, you've got to look at what local factors there are. Um, public holidays, major events around the, the country and the world, um, and, you know, what what infrastructure impacts that there'll be. So if, you know, we finish at a pool, for example, and at the moment they're doing some, some works at the pool, so that's impacting things for future years. So you gotta you got to find your dates really, really early and promote that as early as possible. Um, and then it's figuring out whether you're going to change your routes or not so your course and um, that's for forever changing dynamic at the moment with um, police and traffic management it's getting more and more difficult and the, the permits and insurances are getting more and more difficult to obtain as well and um, you know for example next weekend with the city to surf given all of these um, recent uh, crazy bastards around the world driving people over um, they're saying you can't have full, you can't have single road closures. You either fully shut a road down or you don't use it at all. So that means that we're having to run. Um, sadly, with the short nose, we had a fair bit of it on the footpath. So um, we have to to roll with that. So that's been somewhat stressful. And then two weeks ago, I found out that my old finish line precinct's not available because they're doing coastal erosion works finishing at the surf so some of that stuff like, must do your head in though mustn't it like just trying to organize it well you can let it do your head in or you just my approach is well okay um can i negotiate uh my way around this or do i have to find a solution elsewhere so um there's no point getting emotional about it and, and jumping up and down and ringing people and pulling in favors you just go okay well that's not changing let's let's yeah. run with it and move so you know, we've we've moved finish line a hundred meters, and that you know it means a whole bunch of extra work. But um, I'd rather focus on doing that new work that's done than getting emotional about trying to get the situation that you had before the conversation began. Yeah. So, so you've got your date, you've got your course, um, and then you have to start really ordering products a long way out. You know, what gifts you're giving your runners getting your medals, um, doing all your design work, imagery. I used to try and do some graphic design work myself and I just realised I'm far better off having a graphic designer. So I, I use a graphic des- the same graphic designer, Katie Pastors. She's lovely uh, for all of my work. She's also the, the current Run For Your Life graphic designer who freelances. So I bring in experts like, like her and then you've got to book in all your supplies, traffic management, temporary fencing, timekeepers uh you got to order your race numbers what timing system you're going to use uh then you've got to figure out what platform you're going to use to do your online entries there's so many of them now and i probably get contacted once a month from someone who's popped up new oh yeah richard we're doing online registrations you know do you want to use us so but you try and you try and remain loyal um to to the same people all the time because it makes your job easier um if if, but at the same time, you've got to respond to needs and, and people like like variety as well and choices. So I've always got an open an open mind to to changing things. You don't try and do t- 
too long a contract because you never know what can happen in this space. And uh, but for the the best part, I, I've got the same people um, that do most of my work, whether I'm organising events in in Hobart or in Darwin. Um, and, and then it's a matter of working through your processes, and then quite often the the most difficult thing is getting volunteers and and officials. Uh, for example, run the bridge. I, I had 170 volunteers this year. Um, so you got to find all those people for the drink stations, course marshals. Um, you know, sometimes you got first aid people or volunteers, and um, some some you don't meet, and others that you have plenty of meetings with along the way. And you've got to have the key ones that put out your kilometre signage and all that sort of stuff. So that lots of very important trusting people because you know if someone puts out a kilometre marking you know, 100 metres in the wrong spot, you're going to get 20 people complain about it on your Facebook page the next day. So Yeah, your phone just must be always going off, wouldn't it? Uh, with events, yeah, it does. Uh, I think I manage 15 different Facebook accounts uh, <laughs> of, my, of my thing at the moment and, and probably more than half of them are events. So, um, yeah, and, and sadly, you have to stay on top of it. It's a pain in the butt. I recently created a rule. I said I'm not going to look at my phone after 9 o'clock at night, which made my wife a lot happier because um, it can be never-ending. Um, you go on, go on holidays and, uh, you know, last year we went to Hawaii for a break, but you still have to, you have to check things every day because it can be – absolutely catastrophic the stuff that people put up on facebook but if you don't like if something's arisen and you don't manage it um it's it's better to get on it there and then rather than wait and go into damage control later on if need be yeah how do you like with your personal life how do you manage to balance that does it get a bit tough sometimes not being able to switch off um sometimes but again remember this is a passion of mine so i actually really quite enjoy doing what I'm doing and most of my mates are sadly in the running game sadly or, or, or goodly uh, are in the in the running industry as well they're usually runners or or what so it's okay it's uh, something I'm I've been doing for 12 years or so now so I'm used to being um, whether it's on your phone or go to a social occasion and people talk to you about work it used to do my heading when I worked at athletics and I'd Going, I'd have to wear headphones if I'd do a session. So I'd finish work and then the, the office was at the track and I'd be going to do a track session on a Thursday night or something and people would come up to you and ask work questions. That was annoying. But now I, um, I work from home and I quite enjoy getting out and being amongst the people quite a lot whenever I can. Yeah, awesome. You're also the elite manager for the Gold Coast um, Marathon, the Lonnie 10 and Run the Bridge. You would have uh, been in the company of some pretty amazing athletes over the years, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's been really good working with particularly the Gold Coast Airport Marathon and Ryan McDonald. Um, it's really good work experience and uh, I find myself always needing to continue. I think it's the the best event in the country for sure, the best annual event in the country. Those guys really know what they're doing and um, one of the key reasons uh, is that they've got the same people each year and they're, they're, they're very good at what they do, but also it's a government-owned event. So most events, including the ones that I own, are, are geared to, to making a profit, which um, I, I, absolutely nothing wrong with it because it's what I do, but uh, the Gold Coast Marathon is, is owned by the government. It's a tourism event, so you can really tell when you're working as part of the team that they invest a back a lot back into growing the event and making sure people have the best experience they can. So, 
by all means, they're, they're, they've been the, the best the best guys I've, I've worked with. And I think last year I had 64 athletes from maybe 13 different countries coming in. And uh, we all stay at the Jupiter's Casino and uh, they, they come, they start coming Tuesday or Wednesday from some parts of the world and they, they arrive up until the Saturday and it's pretty amazing. Uh, and then on the Sunday morning, it's a panic at, you know, 4 a.m. you're running around banging on doors of athletes from uh, Ethiopia or Eritrea or Mongolia or Tunisia and it's like, get up, get up the races soon, you got to come on, everyone in the car. That's that's probably the most stressful hour of the year, that um the, the the hour just before the Gold Coast Marathon because so much is invested in getting these guys there and the event spends a lot of money in bringing in the world's best athletes for it and it's my job to make sure that they get to the start line and it's early in the morning and they're all in different floors of a hotel and then you've got to get them from Jupiter's up to Southport in the minibuses and some are in the half marathon, some are in the full marathon which start at different times and different start lines so uh, but we've got a really good team there. It's about a um, team of a dozen or so as, as part of it that's headed up by um, Ryan McDonald, who's one of the best in the game, and that's why he's a race director for the Commonwealth Games next year for the for the road events. Yeah, right. And have you had any um, interesting requests or anything from some of those elite athletes, or it's all pretty smooth? <laughs> the first one that comes to mind, it's actually an Australian athlete so I, at the Cadbury Marathon, so I won't bag about too much, but... Uh, they've. Uh, you would have known at the end of the Cadbury Marathon, we have a VIP area that all the elite athletes get invited into. Yeah, all the chocolate. Yeah, yeah, all the chocolate, of course, being at the chocolate factory. And uh, I had an athlete come up to me afterwards and ask if there was. Uh, it was a hot summer's day. If there was a microwave to microwave their muffin in the VIP area at the end of a fun run, where you could see absolutely everything. There was no cupboards or anything around. I was like, really? You want your muffin microwave <laughs> at the end of a fun run? Just there was that one, and then there was uh, a little little bugger arrived from Africa to uh, to do the Gold Coast Marathon a couple of years ago, and said he didn't have any shoes the day before the event and of course he did he just wanted us to buy him some so we had to take him over to the expo and kit him up with a pair of shoes to run the next day which the event paid for so sneaky little things like that you know that they've they've got them because they train obviously but um yeah you gotta you gotta be mindful of people taking advantage of you as well and um you went to the world champs osaka 07 berlin 09 debut 2011 and moscow 2013 would have seen some amazing athletes in action there as well. Ah, oh, was, it was brilliant. And all of those I worked for, I had media passes, so I worked for uh, a variety of Athletes Australia, News Limited and Run For Your Life magazine. And yeah, it was, it was really incredible. I think, you know, it's funny, everyone bangs on about how good Mo Farah is at winning races. But I tell you what, if he was in, in shape, the, the number one distance runner for me that I've seen in the flesh would have to be Bikili. Uh, Kenanissa Bikili, he he could win off a fast pace, a slow pace. He could be attacked by all the others, and um, unfortunately, we haven't seen Mo Farah and Bikili race against each other when they're both been at top of the game, except for that Great North half a couple of years ago, which yeah. was. Um, and he played games with him that day as well, didn't he? Kind of dropped off and went to the front and looked around and then smashed him. Yeah, I think um, I think Mo, though Mo's obviously a, a brilliant runner. I think he's copped a bit of a lull in world-class athletes. There hasn't been a super fast 
5k or 10k in in a number of years i don't think so i was fortunate enough to see bakili go back to back to back to back to back to back in the doubles of the five and ten for so long uh, but also saw bolts you know world records at, in berlin in in 09 um, bernard vagat got the double 15-5 in osaka um seen some 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 great things and even got to run in the world media championships which is is held at the same champs brady yeah how'd you go i've heard about this before i'm not sure who someone tweeted i reckon not so long ago maybe uh the guy that wrote running with the kenyans i reckon i've seen tweets from him about that before it's actually pretty big the first one i didn't know about it when i first went to uh 07 but then 09 i got wind of it so i trained up for it um and rocked up to berlin and i was i was pretty keen i was in all right shape and there was 104 entries i think so they have like eight different races and it was pretty cool so wilson kipkita who was then the world record holder before rudisha broke it he was the starter and then he was putting the gun down and running and i was really worried even though he was you know a retired guy being the world record holder, i'm like surely this guy can still run 155 easy which was probably about where i was at on that day and uh anyway he started put down the gun and and i led and uh, this bloody 19 year old french guy had a pb of 147 just absolutely hosed all of us um he was he was he was very good i think you know they just just missed the the actual team for uh for france at those world champs so we um i might have finished fourth or fifth that day but then uh, and beaten all by Europeans. But then I rocked up in Daegu 2011 and none of those uh, young European whippersnippers could afford to fly over to Asia. Um, so I actually won that one. That was cool. Good work. Uh, I, ran, I ran, I think I ran 17 seconds slower, which was, a sign, which was also a sign of my fitness level um, and still won. So I got presented by uh, Sebastian Coe, Got, I got given a nice watch and a pair of shoes and a trophy, which I still have, and um, Johan Blake as well was there. So, yeah, it was pretty cool, to be honest. And trips like that just must be a massive whirlwind, wouldn't they? Like you get off the plane and just work for the whole week and a half or whatever it is and eat and sleep when you can and go from there? Yeah, it's pretty hectic. People um, think it's it's cushy, but, like, you might only write one article at the end of the day, but the amount of work that goes into that – um, it's it's not e it's a great job. Don't, I know, it's not a complaint. Don't get me wrong, but it's not an easy job. Um, you know, quite often logistics. You're staying. Your hotel's a long way away from the track. Um, there's heats in the morning that you got to get to to get the background information, and then the the finals, and then um, the athletes. If they if they do well, quite often there's a um, the, the process once an athlete crosses a line after, you know, they do their victory lap and then they do their TV interviews, um, quite often they won't get to the press conference where we get to access them until they've done their warm down and they've done drug testing. They've done, um, you know, they want to talk to their coach and their parents and all sorts of things. And so it's quite often a late, uh, and these things are at nighttime as well, so it's a late uh, thing to get. Uh, when you're on a deadline with newspapers, for example, the next day, fortunately now it's mostly um, uh, mostly digital, so it's not so difficult. You just get it when you can. But, 
yeah, it's uh, it, it's great work, and I'd love to do it again. But uh, having done quite a few world champs and com games now, it's uh, and and I worked at the Sydney Olympics as well in a different role as a, a drug tester of all things. It's um, yeah, it's not as glamorous as what people initially think. It's interesting you bring out the word glamorous because I want to talk to you about social media and athletes in social media. And I was running with someone the other day and we kind of got talking about how elite athletes make it look so glamorous. And I wondered what your thoughts are in this changing world with digital online content, what your, uh, what your thoughts are. Yeah, the first things that come to my mind there, I guess, is Ryan Gregson and Jen LeKay. So I'm, I'm quite close with them and I, I get them to a, a number of events that I organise and promote. And they do social media very well, um, some athletes don't do it so well but um jen in particular uh she's she's blessed as a as a great athlete and she's a terrific looking person as well which makes her highly marketable and that's uh, and and she's a good speaker and she's a lovely person so she's the package to get as, as an event promoter to to events um uh, but i've i've seen her like they rocked up to the mitchell street mile one year she ran uh, two years ago, the two of them ran at the World Champs, and they went and did a couple of races in Europe. Then they went and did the they did a Diamond League. The next weekend, they were in New York for the Fifth Avenue Road Mile. The next week, then they flew home for two days to Sydney to visit family, and then up to Darwin, and and then did the race. And I just looked at them, and they were just tired. If they weren't running, they were tired. And I know it was the end of the season, but then they. Um, that's their job, you know. They got to accept it. So, uh, and quite often, her social media posts are on an aeroplane somewhere or at a training camp. So people think the life of a world class athlete is 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 easy, but geez, it sure isn't. They um they they certainly earn every dollar they earn uh, get, which isn't a lot to be honest. I'm um, privileged to know what some of the not them in particular, but what some of the world's best athletes make. And um, it'll be, I, I love being able to give them a check from an event that I've been associated with because I know that so many of them can do with it. Uh, but social media, it certainly puts people in the in the spotlight more than it used to. And um, you have to use it to your advantage. You have to be on the front foot. Um, I manage Jack Hale, among other things that I do and uh have access to his so some of his social media accounts but he's 19 now had a birthday this week and he he teaches me a lot of things on social media as well so um while i try and keep it pg um i think the best way to look at it i used to give some media training to athletes and you'd say you'd say don't say anything to the media that you wouldn't say to your grandma and Mm. it's kind of the same on social media uh it's just an extension of life so um keep it keep it real but keep it realistic as well yeah we say the same things that kids at school want to have a screenshot and bring it up in 10 years time it's um it's probably going to happen if you say something poor um what i was going to say i read your article probably one of the last questions because i know you got to go soon but i read your article on linkedin about eight sports sponsorship myths Oh, yeah. And I found it really, I think that was a couple of years ago, but I found it really interesting because kind of being on that, you know, brink of, you know, working part-time and a couple of sponsors on the side kind of thing and probably starting out this podcast and writing blogs and things like that, I found it really interesting about how hard you've got to probably jump away from that, I'm a good runner, can you give me some money and I'll put your logo on my top. 
And I'm yep. um, a fan of really, yeah, positive to read that. So do you want to maybe elaborate on a bit of that stuff if you can remember what you wrote that day? Yeah, it's testing me. I remember the day I wrote it. I had a, a, a big life experience myself and I just felt like expressing myself. So nice that someone read it. Um, it yeah, the sponsorship has come such a long way and I'm by no means the, the field expert in this, but I've got some experience. It, gone are the days where you can just be sponsored by someone, put your logo on their chest or put their logo up on the, the, the fence at a sporting ground. People, um, you, you, you get sponsored for a number of reasons, all of which are in the eyes of the person who has the money, not in the eyes of the person receiving the money. So by saying that, I'm saying look at it from the perspective of the company that you think might be interested in sponsoring you and go, if I was them and I only had a certain budget to, to spend money on sponsoring someone, why would I choose you over some other property? And you really have to pitch yourself to to yourself in order to then go after these companies. So they all, business is business. So if, if you can help a business by increasing their sales or their exposure, uh, then that's of value to them. So yeah, you grow up, you're, you live in a regional town, for example. What's the town you live in? Echuca, Echuca, yeah. yeah, lovely part of the world up Beautiful on the river. Place, so, yeah. so um, no doubt in your local newspaper, you, Brady Threlfall, would get uh, a bunch of media coverage from winning fun runs and doing really well traveling around. So local businesses uh, are more inclined to want to partner with you than, say, um, Telstra. You know, you're more likely to be able to offer value to a local Telstra store than Telstra to as a big brand. Now, that sounds obvious, but you can apply that logic to a bunch of other things. So um, why would why would Nike or Adidas want to sponsor you, for example? You know, they're a massive global company. They, they, they probably don't, but the local sports store might do something because then you can um, – you can work with the local sports sort of try and help drive them traffic. So for for athletes and and for argument's sake, let's say you and I are, are similar level athletes. When I was at my best, you're, you're probably a bit better, to be honest, but just for the, the, the benefit of the argument, um, we're, we're similar level athletes. Uh, you, you're not really going to make a lot of money from a big, major company but you can add value to a local local guys you put their logos all over your um your gear that you're racing in you get pictures in the paper and there's a value of that to a sponsor locally and also with social media these days if you've got a great reach then that's a value as well um, you, you could be throwing in a plug during these podcasts or uh through through instagram or snapchat or whatever um and, and and a lot of it now is leading to be organic. Um, so you, you don't necessarily want to make a really obvious push for a sponsorship plugs these days. You want to make it, you might get sponsored by a local cafe and then you just do a Snapchat of you having a sandwich at the local cafe and go, oh, geez, this tastes good. And that's far more valuable than um, a, an obvious post of, of you going on your Facebook page to say, oh, I'm eating at this cafe and having this sandwich and it's only $7.95 and come in and get yours now and use this special discount code so they can track it. Like, it's got to be it's got to be authentic. And 
Um, yeah, we could talk for a long time on that, but uh, it's an evolving space and I think it'll continue to evolve. But people really need to see it from the perspective of the sponsor. And if, if you can't do that, then you need to get someone into your camp who, who can help you do that because I think it's a skill that you need to have in these days. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've um, That's exactly what I've kind of done, working with local community groups and businesses locally. And because, yeah, at the end of the day, you can write letters to Nike or Adidas or whoever and if you're just a small fish in a big pond, it's not going to uh, really have that outreach. And I probably find that being involved in the community is kind of a, a value that you can't put money on. So doing kind of free running clinic clubs or whatever on a Monday night or helping out with park run and little things like that in your community just give the sponsors so much more of a spread. Yeah, and and then within the running community – don't discount the people who are in it. I mean, I, I once got sponsored by the guy I got my home loan off. He said, oh, mate, you um you get your home loan off me. You're in running. I like you. He had plenty of money. I'll pay for you to go to a, a an interstate trip each year. So sponsorship can come in all different um, shapes and sizes. So the biggest mistake I think people make is, oh, I've now run a fast time. I deserve to be sponsored. Uh, my first sponsorship deal pretty much was with Brooks in – 2003 i was working part-time for sports power at the time and um i pitched it to the rep i go mate i've i've just made a national final over 1500 meters he goes oh that's good well done i go but i work at the shop so if you sponsor me then the number of people that come in here and i can put them in a pair of your shoes and he was more interested in the fact that i worked for a sports store than the fact that i'd run a fast time and this was 2003. And uh, so for 14 years, I've been able to hold on to that sponsorship. But I pitched it to them early. And, and now there's different value to to the relationship. But um, I think it's a good message to, to show that people can look at different ways to cut up the pie, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. And do you find that runners are probably a bit more modest than people in other sports as well? So it's almost they're a bit standoffish when these conversations come up? Yeah, and it's tough. I mean, it. The number of times that us runners who have had any sort of success over the years have been asked if we're going to the Olympics. Like, it just happens all the time. And sad, whereas, you know, how big is Australia's team to the Olympics uh, in athletics? You know, 40 or 50 athletes, whereas, what, 800 play AFL. Hmm. So it's so much easier to be a footy player than it is to be a world-class athlete. Um, And, you know, it's... It's something that general society battles with, and that's a challenge for us as athletics people to uh, educate people. But to be honest, Brady, and I I don't like telling this to many people, but running itself is actually boring. Mm. You know, to 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 watch. That's why, as an event organizer, we're constantly doing things creative and you know, helping people to run over bridges or up main streets or something. So if you're putting on a fun run and it's on a course that you can do any other day of the week, people aren't going to pay to do it. So if if you're wondering why you can't get sponsorship, well, maybe you just need to um, jazz up what you're doing and how you're selling it and do something different. If you remember, Victoria Mitchell used to dye her hair pink when she'd go to major championships, um, you know, or something like that. You know, I'd love to see kenyan with bleach bronze hair or something that stands out it'd be funny in a track mate or a, or a road race somewhere yeah um yeah for sure mate we're running out of time and i always ask people at the end of these podcasts if they have a mantra or a quote or a philosophy that they live by 
Ooh. Put you on the spot. You didn't see that one it, coming? No, I didn't. Um, but you'd get plenty of good answers over there. I have. I could put them all together in the first 18 episodes. I reckon I could nearly write a short story about them all. I'd like that. I'd like that. Um, I I like to think that your attitude is your choice is a big one. So you can get hit with all the bad news you like and how you respond to it and deal with it is is your choice. So that's probably the the biggest one. Uh, my mum always says don't sweat the small stuff, which I think is also a good one. Yeah, and that works um, into attitude? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, but your attitude is your choice. I think that's, that's probably the, the most relevant one to me. Beautiful, mate. Where can uh, people who are listening find more of your work? Well, Twitter, at WellSheKnows. Um, I own and organise the B&E Hobart Run the Bridge. Uh, I'm the race director for the Mitchell Street Mile, the uh, the NT Conico Phillips Sea to Surf. I do the cycling event in Darwin, the Top End Grand Fondo. Um, but mainly, I'm the owner of Epic Events and Marketing. So, if you see us getting around, um, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and website epiceventsandmarketing.com. But uh, if you ever need anyone to organise your event or promote it or anything fun or want some advice, always happy to help out people in the industry. Beautiful, mate. Thanks for your time again today. Hey, good on you. Good work and uh, keep listening, people. Good on you, Brady. Cheers, mate. Thanks. enjoyed that as much as I did as you can tell um, Richard's really good to have a bit of a laugh with and good sense of humor but at the same time he really gets the sport and his opinion about some of those topics we spoke about I know myself I really value so um, and he always looks after you at events that you go to that he's putting on so a massive thanks to Richard for his time again hope you enjoyed that show guys Uh, we'll be back next week with the road to Berlin podcast series early in the week and then the interview one later in the week Hope whatever you're up to in your life's going good, running-wise, work-wise. Hope you're getting plenty of sleep and eating good foods. And, um, yeah, everything is going fantastic at your end. Thanks again for tuning in. Goodbye.
put their handkerchiefs in their mouths and try not to laugh. <laughs> catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 